fuck's happening? Oh, oh man. shit, man. Oh, man, I shot Marvin in the face. Why the fuck did you do that? Well, I didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. Oh, man, I see some crazy-ass shit in my time, but this, this, this... Ciao a tutti! Welcome everybody, this is Roomtone, the show that takes filmmaking's community to your ears. I'm Rogero, your host, we are broadcasting here from Unseated Maskum Land, a UBC, CITR Radio, and we have some eyes filled with wisdom here in the studio with us. He is award-winning production designer, actor, director, art gallery director, and art teacher, John R. Taylor. How are you doing, John? I'm just fine. Thank you for inviting me. Woo, thank you for this deep voice. I'm, we're so curious to hear from you. Eyes that have been gone through a, ge- a whole generation and uh, are ready to uh, actually share a little bit of what uh, uh, they have seen in the past uh, multiple years of experience in the field. So first of all, for the people out there, uh, first things first, who are you? <laughs> well, I am an actor, as you said, and I still do production design as well. But I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Canadian lad, born in Alberta, grew up in Ontario, mm-hmm. and uh, I've had a lifetime in the arts, whether it be the visual arts or, the, or writing, uh, and I think I owe that all to my mother. Mm, awesome. Beautiful. Very, sounds very interesting. And uh, the way I met you actually is very interesting because uh, this is a throwback uh, back to Paul Armstrong back at Roomtone Take 4. Uh, he talked about the Celluloid Social Club. And that's where I actually met you, John. And uh, there was the 20th anniversary of the Celluloid Social Club. And then I saw this extremely interesting man uh, that uh, was looking all over. I said, ah, that, that, that man definitely has something. And then we just introduced each, to each other. And, and there you go. Here you are on the, on the show just uh, sharing your pearls of wisdom here there and uh, talking about what you've gone through so first things first again we're here at the beginning of the episode and we're going to dive deeper a little bit later but first I want to ask you uh, about your translation from acting to theater and then to filmmaking how did that happen and and uh, you also as a award-winning director for your short film we're going to talk about a little bit later but as a filmmaker what about your translation and why did you translate from theater to filmmaking well um my career for uh 30 years was in the visual arts. I was a gallery director and I was an art teacher. Uh, But I always belonged to the theater club wherever I lived. And I worked in theater for many years. I'd never considered that I was going to end up in film at all. Hmm. And uh, moved to Vancouver in 1988. And I started to become associated with people working in film. And because of that, I said, well, I'll go in that direction. I did a volunteer student film. It wasn't UBC, it was SFU. Mm -hmm. And uh, loved the role. And I had the VHS tape. 
And I asked a friend of mine who was an actor if he would, uh, what he thought of it. And he said, I'll take you to meet my agent. Mm-hmm. And so he did. He took me down to Granville Island and I met Murray Gibson at Characters. And on the strength of that one student film, that one little role, Murray Gibson took me on. And it's been uh, 29 years and I'm still with him. Very interesting. Okay, so with all these uh, aspects around you and all these different doors that you have been opening, what is the one door that you always find yourself going back to? That's very hard to say. <laughs> I consider myself drawn to all of the arts. I love poetry, I love writing, I love music in the broadest sense, from jazz to classic. And I love theater, and I love film, and I love being behind the camera, I love mm-hmm. being in front of the camera. I, one of the things I'm pleased with and proud of is a multifaceted career, mm-hmm. and I know I've been blessed to be uh, able to have done so much in so many different fields. Mm-hmm. I've never been at the top of the ladder, but I've been two or three rungs from the top, and uh, I've always felt very, very... Um, blessed by the various things I've done. There is some beauty in this uh, multi-layered uh, personality, I believe, because in the end, we as people are like that as well. We, 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 many people tend to specialize and specialize, uh, but there is some loss in there as well because we get to experience a little bit of the circle that it, life mm-hmm. can be rather than the square. That, that, and the tough angles that sometimes life puts you in front of. Uh, but this, this extremely uh, versatile personality and mentality um, makes yourself a very, very, very interesting uh, individual. And that's why I wanted to also ask you, in the past uh, years in the arts, if there has been one event that actually changed your view uh, on the world of the arts and the artistic process. I can't say that there was one event. Um, I have cried when I've listened to music. I have cried at the theater. No, and uh, there have been things like that that make you, that hit you deeply emotionally. But I can't think of any one in particular. What I can think of is lucky breaks. Mm. Um, I had never worked in production design for film. And uh, there was a television episodic being done for Comedy Network here in Vancouver. And they were ready to go to camera in about five days. And I got an urgent, panicked phone call from a woman I knew then Mm. who knew I did set design. Mm. And she said, could you come and be our production designer? And I said, well, what does that involve? What do you mean? And she took me in and I, I found that the man who was doing the production design had to be let go mm. because they were ready to go to camera in about five days and they still didn't have one set built. <laughs> so I came in out of the blue, never having done production design, and I worked for that summer mm. on that episodic. So I did, 39 epi- I, I did 13 episodes that summer. Mm-hmm. I did two more summers uh, with the same organization, 39 episodes of television, all comedic, but never dismiss comedic as being a little easier than mm-hmm. drama. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They all have their requirements. For sure. So I learned, I learned on the fly, I learned on the job, and uh, came out of it at the end of the summer immensely richer in many ways, including financially. 
Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole adventure. And when it comes to actually production design for theater and filmmaking, what do you think it's the greatest difference between the two? The greatest difference you learn quite quickly when you start to do production design. <clears throat> the greatest difference is uh, in film, you never know where that camera is going to go. And when they do a turnaround, whatever you've just built is now seen from the opposite side. You never know whether the camera is going to be six inches away from the item or six feet away from the item. It always has to withstand the camera. Mm -hmm. And that you learn quite quickly. In theater, of course, it's very different because the audience is normally about 30 to 40 feet away mm -hmm, mm -hmm. from whatever is on the stage. Mm -hmm. And the camera doesn't usually go around, the audience doesn't usually go around the back. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, uh, I feel that this, this difference here that goes back to adaptability in a way when, when you're on set uh, makes a huge difference in the amount of work that there is behind it, I guess. Or you think it's, it's uh, how do you feel the mental approach of the uh, production designer in movies differs from the one in theater, the actual mentality, so that when you get to work, because I saw you yesterday actually working, he's now painting a set uh, on Granville Island, and I went there and it's painted, it's beautiful, it's, it's painted all over the place, and, and uh, there is so much, you can feel the art breathing in there, and I was stepped into the, 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 the set, and it was jazz, amazing jazz music, and I was like, whoa, it's a, it's a whole different environment, so the, mental, the mentality behind the work, uh, you can smell the difference. Is there any difference when you when you uh, production design for movies than from theater? It's a very, very different atmosphere to work in. Theater uh, varies, of course, from major productions to very small uh, productions. And I've done a lot in town. I've worked a great many years with United Players mm -hmm. at Jericho Art Center. And uh, I'm very proud of some of the sets I do there. I had, to draw the, I had to draw the line about 10 or 15 years ago and tell them I would do one set a year, mm -hmm. and that would be it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wanted to pick which one I would choose. Okay. <laughs> uh, this past year, I did the set for a play called The Train Driver, mm. which is a South African uh, author. Oh. And the, uh, the theater had to be a cemetery. Mm. Uh, the stage had to become a cemetery with mm -hmm. a uh, grave digger's shack in the corner and the, the atmosphere that had to be delivered to me was very important to make that play successful and if I may quote Colin Thomas the well-known critic in town opened his review of that show with the words that it was the best use of the theater space he had mm -hmm. ever seen oh wonderful so, Woo, that's gold right there mm. uh, it's creating atmosphere because in theater that is very 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 important mm. Uh, and you usually have a little more time in theater. In film, it can be very rushed. Mm. Uh, and the bigger the production, you'd, be, you'd think it would be the other way around. The bigger the production, the more time, it's usually the less time. Mm. Because there's so much being shot in so many ways, in so many directions. In one day on a film set, four or five sets could actually come into play, mm. depending on the nature of the production. And uh, as a production designer, you're the head of an art department that may have 10 or 15 people in it. Mm -hmm. And they're working on their own throughout the day and night sometimes. And you don't know what they're delivering until it finally arrives on set. 
and it's very, very, very stressful. Mm, can be pretty hectic over there, but uh, hectic uh, and stressful. Yeah, moonwalking back a little bit and actually getting to your successful short film. As uh, you won an award as a Miglior Regia Best Director in a in a film festival, actually international film festival in Sicily, in Italy. And uh, what was the spark that pushed you to direct uh, this short film here, se- uh, named Says Who? Oh, well, uh, first uh, it began with a script competition. Uh, there used to be a, a script competition called the Hot Shot Shorts Contest, which is connected, by the way, to the Celluloid Social Club. Mm-hmm. And I entered a script into that competition. Mm. It made the final five, but it wasn't the winner. Mm. But one of the uh, one of the jurors was Ed Brando, who is the chief honcho of William F. White International, who provide film equipment here in Vancouver for virtually every production. He was one of the jurors for that script. And when it didn't succeed in that competition, he told me privately one day, he said, if you ever want to make that film, we'll give you whatever you need. Mm. That's, a, that's, a, that's a beautiful position, huh? It's a beautiful so, position. Oh, well, if I meant it, all the equipment. So I took him up on that. A couple of months later, I said, were you serious? And he said, yes, I was. So uh, William F. White provided the uh, gear to shoot Says Who?, We had to pick it up Friday evening after the rest of the uh, day's work for the big boys was done. Mm-hmm. We could use it on the weekend and had to get it back uh, Monday morning first thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would estimate that it was fifteen to twenty thousand dollars worth of equipment. Mm, not we bad were, at all, eh? We not bad at all. <laughs> sponsored by William F. White. Wow. Well, and, it's... Uh, so I had written the script, <clears throat> and since Ed Brando loved it to that extent, I mm-hmm. felt confident that. It would work. That is a beautiful position to be in. Sometimes it's the hardest thing to actually find the movement around the idea, to create momentum and actually bring it to life. Yes. Um, but it's, it's, it's important. It's like a chess match again, taking advantage of that moment, yes. making that exchange that really gives you the chance and to I, go ahead. I knew if I b- dropped the ball, it would be gone forever. So mm-hmm. I took Ed Brando up on it. We launched an Indiegogo campaign and oh. we raised $5,000 in oh. a couple of weeks. And uh, that paid for Crafty and and all the other things that we needed that for sure know, um, so we shot for two days and I had an excellent crew wonderful actors and uh, felt extremely blessed again my very first and still my only film mm-hmm. and uh, it went into five festivals and and it won a best director award in in Italy for me awesome this sounds great so if you could summarize the intent or the thematic the message behind this short film uh, how, how uh, would you do that well the short film is a dramatic story and it's I, I know that it's been proven to me that the script was valid the idea I had I got when I was riding a bus mm. and I looked around me on the bus I ride the bus a great deal and I do this sometimes I look on the bus and I saw people on the bus and I said what is their story Where are they going? Why are they on the bus? What are they thinking about us? What are they thinking about me? And I'm thinking about them. So my story is a young lad with a skateboard. Mm. And he's sitting on the bus. And there's a blind man with a seeing eye dog. A young man gets on the bus. And then there's an elderly man gets on the bus as well. So the skateboarder is watching the elderly man and watching the young blind man. And he takes a notebook out of his pocket and we see him starting to write a story. And then we cut to the old man and the young blind man, 
and they go through a long conversation where they strike up a friendship. Mm-hmm. Then they have a collision of of emotions, and uh, uh, those things don't go well for them. In mm-hmm. the end. it's just in the immediacy of that moment in a cafe, and then uh, the young blind man says, "I better go," and he walks away on his own. And the elderly man realizes that he's caused this rift, mm-hmm. and he walks after the young blind man and okay. slows him down and talks to him. And and uh, the young blind man sees a skateboarder going by, and he says, "See that? That's one of the things I used to do, and now I can't." And the young blind man doesn't see the skateboarder; he hears mm. him. And the elderly man says, "Well, I don't know. Maybe you could. Maybe you could find a coach who could." And uh, from that, they actually do find a coach, and the blind man does, in fact, go through a skate bowl and comes up the other side and comes around to the elderly man who he reaches out for the hand he can't see, and they do (laughs) high-five. Nice. And the elderly man says, uh, oh, the the young blind man says, that's pretty crazy, don't you think? And the elderly man says, says who? Mm -hmm -hmm. Interesting. I I really, really appreciate seeing the passion as you're talking about this through your eyes and and the specific lines around it. There is definitely... So then we cut to the young man, the Mm -hmm. skateboarder. Do you want to spoil it? Do you want to spoil it? Oh, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Let's go ahead. We cut to the skateboarder on the bus, and he's writing in his notebook, and he writes the words, says who? And then you see him looking at the elderly man and the young blind man who have never moved. They've always been on the bus. Mm -hmm. They're only in his story in the book. Mm-hmm. And he gets up and exits the bus. Okay. And skates away into the evening. Okay. Nee, nee, nee. 100 points for that. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, after that long, uh, interesting uh, um, exploration of Says Who, uh, we're going to take a little break. We're going to have to take a little break. This is actually a break colored by the haunting saxophone uh, of the soundtrack of With Nil and I chosen by our guests. So, uh, so uh, enjoy. This is With Nil and I, Water Shade of Pale.
Welcome back, everybody. This is Room Tone, the show that takes filmmaking's community to your ears. I'm Ruggiero, your host, and here we are with John R. Taylor, artist. Uh, he has been uh, going through all the aspects of visual arts, uh, but here we are. Um, John, I want to ask you something right away. Uh, why the soundtrack of With Nail and I? What does this soundtrack mean to you? Well, that selection we just heard is the opening of the film With Nail and I. And... Um, it sets the tone for that film. Um, music for film, to me, is very, very important. And whoever chose that and created it for Withnail and I uh, to set the stage for the film. The film is a story of loneliness. It's a story of uh, feeling uh, unsuccessful, struggling to become actors. There are two young men who want to become actors. Uh, they're struggling away and living in a down and dirty rooming house and um, nothing's going right for them. And the melancholy and the loneliness of that beautiful theme. It's, it's a beautiful melancholy. That's what I love about it. It's a melancholy with optimism mm -hmm. that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, it's a, I, I like the music because it doesn't solve the, uh, it doesn't bring you all the answers and solve all the problems. But it makes us realize somehow that there is a light at the end of the tunnel that we can solve the problems. Mm -hmm. I read that into that music. I may be overdoing it. No, 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 no. But no. there's something magnificent in that music that speaks to me about opportunity. Mm. hope mm. and keep moving on keep yeah. going there is no overdoing in the arts that's for sure okay. and uh, uh, there is something that uh, fluctuates in the air here is like a question uh, uh, that needs to be asked to someone uh, with your experience um, what makes a piece of art a piece of art as an artist yourself going through all these adventures and these experiences in time uh, I'm curious to ask you what you believe is the nature of art and what makes a piece of art a piece of art the way it is? That's a huge question. <laughs> we could write 15 volumes on a bookshelf about yeah, that. I know, I know. Because first of all, uh, there are so many arts. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the visual art, which I began in. Um, and I often, by the way, use music when I use it uh, uh, as an analogy when I talk about theater if I'm, if I'm working with uh, with uh, actors or talking about theater I'll often use music hmm. because we can we seem to be able to everybody knows music I think more people know music than any of the arts I can say that I can talk about jazz I can talk about rock and roll mm -hmm. I can talk about classic music um and all of its, you know, the Baroque era and so on. And people know right away what you're talking about. Mm. And I'll say, that film or that painting echoes the Baroque era. Mm -hmm. Or that, that painting is like jazz. Mm. Know, so to me, the visual and the audio uh, are, and the, you know, they're all related. So when you speak of the arts... That's the way I do look at the arts. They are mm -hmm. there are seven lively arts apparently, and one of them is is uh, painting. One mm -hmm. of them is architecture. One of them is music. One of them is dance. 
So the, the arts are all part of a giant family. And I think that most artists of whatever creed or, or area are also sympathetic to all the other arts. The more artistic you are, the more you have, I think, you, you have to be, but you also are mm-hmm. uh, ready to embrace all of the arts. I go to dance shows. I will go to uh, film. Uh, there are some things I cut out of my wish list for film. I do not go to action films and and uh, so so you when you when it comes to the arts you basically try to see the whole picture and then reconnect the dots. So you don't need mm-hmm. to reconnect the dots. You you should each one of those arts in its own way presents its own message to the viewer mm-hmm. or the listener. Uh, what I would ask people to do if I was ever, if I was teaching <clears throat> about the arts, I would say open yourself up to assess and experience and feel the majesty mm. of uh, Jesse Norman singing a magnificent mm-hmm. operatic aria. Uh, listen to it. Let it invade you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Um, so there is an aspect of the uh, piece of art that actually starts from the, the the person who experiences the art. That's what you're saying. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. You have to be open to accept whatever the art is. Mm-hmm. And the more you know about art, the more the easier it gets mm. to see and sense those other arts. Uh, I have another statement that I made year, years and years ago when I was an art teacher. Mm-hmm. And then I came out... Uh, After uh, teaching for two years in a high school, I then uh, have taught art in uh, summer schools for the art and things like that. And one of the things I came up with as a realization is you cannot teach art. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really resonate with that, actually, because, uh, I mean, the idea, the idea behind art, I believe, that, that's my personal belief, we can talk about this for a very long time, but I believe it goes back to something that has an intent to create movement through emotions. And if you yes. look at the word emotion itself, it's E from energy and motion from movement. Right. It's a movement through emotion and, and, yeah. and taking advantage of the energy that fluctuates yeah. in our world. We channel it in such yeah. a way that people are moved by it. Yeah. Now, it's very interesting because if you look at neuroscience as well, they call it space of possibilities. That space in which only you can explore and no one else can. And right. that place there is where, where all artists are capable of working. And that's why I believe everybody is an artist, but not everybody can unlock that aspect of themselves because they cannot unlock their way to the space of possibility. So I truly believe that when we find ourselves in front of objects, for example, I could ask you, why isn't this microphone a piece of art? Or why is this a piece of art? And when you look at technology and inventions and the way they shape our eyes on what's actually artistic, in quotes, uh, it becomes becomes extremely... It it becomes a a debate that deserves a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. But... uh, Um, when it goes back to the multifaceted experiences that you had, um, going back to the idea of a personal and subjective view on the matter, it's, it's of course, key to go ahead. And that's why I actually wanted to ask you as an as a art gallery director, what is it that you look into the artistic work? What is it you... You look into, what is it that you seek and that you're striving for when it comes to the artistic piece of work? Well, um, you learn to communicate 
on the <clears throat> just as French and Italian and English are different languages, uh, the arts are different languages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, you learn the language of opera. You learn the language of uh, uh, you know folk uh, folk music. Mm -hmm. uh, each very valid. Mm -hmm. Each extremely important. Each reflective of their place, their purpose. Um, when I said it's impossible to teach art, you don't teach art. You teach the techniques and methods and materials of art. But to be a really good art teacher, you have to uh, light fire inside the student, if you can. And the ability uh, to do that is the most heartwarming experience you can mm, have. Beautiful. If, when I was a teacher in, uh, in Pickering College in uh, Ontario, there was a, a student in grade 12 who wasn't in my art class. He, he listened in on some of my art classes uh, when he had a spare and so on. And he did a painting during that year that I remember to this day um, because it was an abstract painting. And he had started to learn and to understand how abstraction isn't something uh, without discipline and without order. Mm. That it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And he created this painting, uh, which was a valid, extremely mm. good work of art. And it was called To Break an Egg. Oh! And it, it was based on a broken egg and uh, the colors of the yolk and the colors behind it. And the, the quiet of that it was a very large piece um, done on Bristol board. Mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't, a, wasn't going to be a, anything for an art museum to keep. But it, that piece had impact. Mm -hmm. And it also had silence. Okay, so what were... Oh, wow. That is a very interesting space to explore. Where, how, would you, how would you define that, little, that, that space, that balance, that, that almost like that, well, that paradox? It also, it also employed one of the things that I've always maintained the very best artists are the ones who are the very confident ones and the confidence Ooh. is not put on mm -hmm. it's because they have developed it mm. and they have learned restraint this is gold right here mm, this is gold Woo! wow thank you so much for sharing that this is gold for, for, for everybody who's listening for myself and, and I, I feel that people uh, are really starving for this type of, of of knowledge, really drowning in information and starving for knowledge. This is the situation now, and uh, I feel we got to look back actually and learn, mm -hmm. learn from the patterns of history and start start to explore a little bit more the corners and the possibilities that something like arts can bring to us. Because when the world is confused, like in situations like nowadays in 2017, arts is the answer and storytelling is the answer, so that we can find a better path to explore. Can I do a quote for you here? Please. This is a famous quotation. I do not know the author. Mm -hmm. All passes. Art alone remaining stays to us. The bust outlasts the throne. The coin, Tiberius. Ooh, wow, okay, we're getting, uh, the, the air here in the studio is extremely uh, pleasant here today. Uh, uh, John sharing some extremely fascinating uh, bits of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, I really got to thank you for that. Um, the, 
process, uh, the artistic process, uh, when do you feel it actually begins? And when do you think it's actually over for an artist? It, it can begin almost at birth. There are definitely child drawings that uh, there. I, I, one, my oldest son is a visual art painter, and um, he's very successful now. He's in his early 40s. I look back on his child art when he was four, five, six. I still have quite a stash of it. And I see that he was capable then of seeing things, remembering them in his head, and bringing them up later. And that, that memory, that, that to paint from a, something that obviously affected mm. him, for example, we went to a zoo once, mm-hmm. and there were monkeys in the cages. And, of course, they're clambering up the cages, hanging off the bars. That We saw that we were in that zoo in Europe. We came back to Canada. A month later, as a five- or six-year-old, he did a drawing of the monkeys in the zoo. And out of nowhere, he didn't ask me anything. He just one day did that. That's that vision had stayed with him and he recreated it in his child art at six years of age and it's fascinating mm-hmm. the monkeys are at different positions on the bars mm-hmm. there's some on the floor of the cage or some up high mm-hmm. there's some midway up mm-hmm. and they all have motion they all have the life and the vitality of monkeys climbing in a cage mm-hmm. done with a pencil or a pen as a line drawing by a six year old months after we've been to that zoo that kind of observation that is carried forward and makes art of that nature yeah 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 yeah, yeah. it's it's almost like uh, i feel this uh, sort of need to defeat time through art art can defeat time for sure this it's it's almost like a great way to go and explore the different aspects of ourselves in our childhood. Now, because in our early childhood, we actually uh, start to experience the first signs, I believe, the first, the first postmarks and first directions of where we actually deserve to go as ourselves. But oh, uh, yeah. There's, the, t- there's tons of examples, especially of musicians, mm-hmm. uh, composers, rather, I meant to say. Yeah. There's many, many, many composers began in their early childhood. It's, it really is quite surprising how sentient... Uh, preschool children can be and I've had the pleasure of working with students at various levels mm-hmm. and uh, I've always enjoyed it beautiful it's a, it's a, it's a big big question mark here uh, lying over us and uh, it, it, when it comes to the arts it's, it's also almost like a time machine as well also from listening to what, what you've been saying it feels like a time machine as well because it feels that the piece of art is fueled from the past but it lies over the future. And there is this in- incredibly interesting theory that the piece of art is not something that only comes from our memories and our own uh, exper- past experiences, but it's something that is actually uh, stimulated by something that might happen in the future. And uh, our actual definition, our own identity changes from the piece of art. So it's not us giving an identity to the piece of art, but it's the piece of art giving ourselves an identity. And therefore, is giving us the shape 
that we're going to live after we give birth to the piece of art. It, it becomes very interesting when we start to play with, with the aspect of time and, and creativity, because creativity sometimes can only come from the outside. And for us, it might be just the next logical step towards the, the creative aspect of our mind. But then someone else pulls out the creative card and tells us uh, how far we've actually gone from some, someone's point of view. Um, but the, the concepts that take us into this, this, this uh, mentality can get us really, 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 really deep. So uh, we got to take it back to Room Tone a little bit. Let's step back a little bit. Let's get into Room Tone. And I think we're going to have, actually have to take a break. Um, so we're going to catch up in a second. John, any last thoughts before we take a little break? On the questions of? Uh, on the questions of life and art and anything before we wrap it up? We wrap well, up this little section, of course. We're still at um, Without being too pontifical, I just definitely want to say that I feel everyone is enriched by the arts. Mm. So I encourage people who are not uh, participants uh, in the art world, do they if, go to theater, go to films, choose your films. Because some, some films are, uh, I don't think, worth the time. Yeah. And there are other films that are magnificent. I just saw uh, Loving Vincent. Oh! And uh, it's a masterpiece. It's, uh, it's about an hour and a half long. Uh, the bulk of the film is hand-painted frames. Beautiful. Echoing the style of Vincent van Gogh, or van Gogh, however you pronounce mm-hmm. it. And uh, films like that demand a lot of the viewer. You have to have patience. I was swept away by it. Um, it's not drawing much of an audience. That's too bad because I think it definitely has a good message inside it. Interesting. Hmm, we're going to talk a little bit about that later. Every frame, every frame is painted. Uh, wow. The amount of work, extremely interesting. Okay. Woo, we're going to catch a little break after that uh, uh, apnea down the sea. And uh, yeah, enjoy the little uh, soundtrack. This is uh, from Whitney and I right after the ads. Catch you in a second. Thank you. 
Welcome back. This is Room Tone, the show that takes filmmaking's community to your ears. We have John R. Taylor with us here in the studio. Uh, let's go right back into the thematic. We've been talking about the arts and the nature of arts uh, here earlier. Uh, and I want to just uh, dive right back into the movie, actually, the last movie uh, you've been talking about, about Van Gogh, and where every frame is painted. I wanted to ask you, what is the one thing that, that, uh, that draws you back to that, to that piece of art? Well, it truly is a piece of art because, as you know, it was—it uh, is not filmed. There is some film insert where they use black and white film photography, mm-hmm. but the bulk of the film is hand-painted frames. Hundreds of artists worked painting thousands of frames wow. to make a film, and I am—I so was very impressed by many technical things. Mm-hmm. They echoed uh, Van Gogh's style mm-hmm. perfectly. Awesome. Uh, but they're creating storyline images to support the story using, of course, the Van Gogh style. For sure. Going down roadways, sitting mm-hmm. in a bar, uh, things like that. These become Van Gogh paintings on the screen. Awesome. Street. Super interesting. Got to check it out for sure. So they've got that technical. Um, yeah. Then you, uh, speaking of the arts and how they are interwoven, how do you tell the story? Now, it's not the story of of the artist's life. It's the story, actually, of his death. It's the debate over whether he was accidentally killed uh, by himself uh, as suicide, or deliberately suicide, or was he actually murdered? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there is a there is an unknown situation there. It's never been solved. Uh, they didn't go into it, uh, you know, in, um, de- in detail. Mm-hmm. But They had to write the human interest story. Then they had to uh, set it all in the artistic environment. Mm -hmm. So the question mark mixed with the technicality of it uh, makes it stand out. That's very interesting. I want to give you an opportunity right now. And uh, we're talking about the one-minute pitch uh, situation here. So if you're ready to go for it, we have one minute where you can pitch uh, a show or an idea that you have that you'd like to realize or bring to life in the future. Uh, and whenever you're ready, we can go ahead. We're going to have that ticking up ahead. And you just let me know. Just pitch any future idea or project that you'd like to bring to life. You let me know when you're ready. You want to give it a shot? I'll give it a shot. Right on. And the clock is going. Let's go. Let's give it One a minute. shot. One minute. One minute. We have it right here. Um, I am, I'm in the process, actually, of creating a documentary based on photographs of the American Southwest. Oh. Uh, I find the American Southwest very alluring. The, the ghost towns and mining camps and derelict places of southern Oregon, Nevada, and so on. Um, I would like to do a documentary that explores the road once traveled, the uh, history and the, the atmosphere of these abandoned places, and the romance of that country. I find that country very romantic, very compelling. So I want to do a video photo documentary. Awesome. The Road Once Traveled. Woo, beautiful. The Road's Once Traveled. That's the name? Yes. The Road's Once Traveled. Amazing. Sounds, sounds very interesting. Uh, you got to look into it for sure and get some words on paper. We're going to get this uh, clock. We actually finished a little bit earlier, so we're going to get this clock down there. Good job on that. And uh, now it's time for the Proust questionnaire, actually. Okay. We're going to get into the Proust questionnaire. So Proust wrote five diff- uh, 35 different questions, and we're going to go through five of them randomly. They believe that they would define someone's true identity. So uh, we're going to go first question of the Proust questionnaire. Which living person do you most admire? 
Whoa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Which living person? Yeah. Do I most admire? This is this is a. It's probably a great opportunity. I'm going to miss it because I. Mm, to give that accolade to somebody, mm-hmm. you have to be careful. Okay. You know, I don't know who I would give that to. Is there a name that crosses your mind right now? And who should it be? Should it be a statesman or should it be a person? This is very interesting. It's it's all totally up to you. <laughs> yeah. You hmm. want to get back to that later in case it pops in your mind? I'm going to ask you the second question of the Proust questionnaire in case it pops into your mind throughout these next questions. Or who I would give it to. It's more like bestowing something on okay. someone. I'm going to bestow it on somebody that is going to have her 95th birthday tomorrow morning. Ooh. I, I admire her immensely right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this episode of my life, I've known her for the past 15 years. Mm-hmm. She's 95 mm-hmm. tomorrow morning. She mm-hmm. comes to the cafe near where we live and uh, we're having a Coffee Clatch birthday party at 8.30 in the morning mm-hmm. at the Arbutus Cafe, 6th and U, for Daisy Nordling, who's celebrating her 95th birthday. You are all invited. Woo! Beautiful. <laughs> all right. Amazing. That was an amazing answer right there. Okay. Second question of the Proust questionnaire. What do you consider your greatest achievement? Hmm. Victoria Hall, Coburg, Ontario. Oh. Okay, that was quick. All right. <laughs> I like that. I like that. How come? How do you feel that? Well, um, Victoria Hall, Coburg, Ontario, was destined for demolition mm. in 1969, 1970. And uh, it is a magnificent, gigantic, historic building in Canada. When it was built, it was the largest building in Canada. It's in the tiny town of Coburg, Ontario. They built this town hall in 1856 to 1860 hoping to become the capital of Canada. Mm-hmm. This is before Confederation. Mm-hmm. They were competing then with Toronto and Kingston. Mm-hmm. Coburg, in the years, has only grown to 20,000 people. Toronto is now over 2 million. Mm-hmm. They were at one time the same size. Mm-hmm. So Coburg built this magnificent town hall. It's uh, half a million cubic feet. It's a three-story building. It's neoclassic. It's a masterpiece of... of uh, the, the Renaissance revival, and uh, it was, it had fallen into such disrepair, disrepair, because the town did not have the tax base to keep it maintained, and it was settling, and it was cracking, and it was actually condemned. Mm-hmm. And this beautiful building, anybody can look it up on their smartphone, Victoria Hall, Coburg, Ontario. Interesting was opened in 1860 by His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, who became Edward VII. And uh, that's how important it was in its day when it opened in 1860. Mm-hmm. In, 18, in 1970, it was faced with possible demolition. I was one of the few people that at the beginning said this cannot happen. And we created what was called the Society for the Restoration of Victoria Hall, took it over from the town of Coburg and said, we will restore it. Awesome. We will raise the money. In the end, it cost $7 million to mm. be restored. And, uh, that's, but you made it happen. We made it happen. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. Okay, we're going to go to the third question of the Proust questionnaire. And what is your most treasured possession? I have a little wooden carving. Mm-hmm. Uh, Prince George, or uh, St. George, rather. St. George and the dragon. It's a wooden carving of a rider on a horse and the dragon underneath. It's a wooden carving. It's only about five inches high. 
It's uh, it's uh, in the round, which means you can turn it mm-hmm. t- any direction. It sits on a base. My mother found it in an antique shop in northern oh, England. Okay. And she bought it and mailed it to me for Christmas many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. And it is a gorgeous piece of the craft of wood carving. Very interesting. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Fourth question of the Proust questionnaire. Where would you most like to live? Italy. Oh, there you go. <laughs> All right. All right. I kind of feel that a little bit. I'm missing a little bit uh, uh, the pizza and the coffee and the fragrance from home. I, I can't deny that. But uh, yeah. If yeah, I yeah. win the lottery, I'm going to Italy. Um, Cortona, just outside of Florence. Nice. Oh, man. It. You got it. That's yeah. that's number one. Mm, Tuscany is, is, is whoo. Yeah, yes. don't get me started on that. We got to go. We got to wrap it up, actually. Uh, fifth question of the Proust question and is the last one. And we reconnect a little bit to uh, uh, what could someone pus- could possibly see in Whitney and I. But it's a tough question. What do you regard as the lowest depth of misery? Hmm. <laughs> the lowest depth of misery. Um, I feel... Um, this this yeah. is emotional. I feel people who are affected by something physical while they still have their mental abilities and they are condemned to lie in a bed and be nursed and their daily functions won't operate without the help of staff and they lie there with their faculties in place but no physical ability that is a miserable condition wow okay that was uh, uh, that was a a pretty defined answer for the fifth question of the Proust questionnaire and uh, it's actually time for us to wrap it up I I thank you uh, John Art Taylor for coming here in the studio Uh, this was Roomtong is the show that takes filmmaking community to your ears. We talk movies because we love it. Now we have a little bit of a pearl, a little bit of a gift. And uh, John is actually going to wrap it up. I'm going to say bye right now. And John is going to wrap up the episode because uh, we have a little bit of a surprise uh, after what John says coming from the movie with Neil and I. For the rest, I'll see you next Wednesday. John, it's all for you. The closing scene of with Neil and I is Richard Grant standing in the rain under an umbrella looking out on a park in London, and he recites the soliloquy from Hamlet. We've chosen that as the final soundtrack for this program. I feel it is an indication of the power of filmmaking, which is what this show is all about, that this was the chosen soundtrack delivered by the actor this way. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth. And indeed... It goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame the earth seems to me a sterile promontory. It's the most excellent canopy, the air. Look you, this brave or hanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire. Why, it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god 
beauty of the world, paragon of animals. Yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. No, no women neither. No women neither. Yeah.